It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen that no sheets. The land of the platter with the fear fight down. I fire in a fire, but the system of the gang and the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're eating it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. And Bloom! That's right. Friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour. A reliable rookery of resoluteness in an irrational world. <laughs> I'm Joe Alden, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts and podcasts and videos and all sorts of stuff on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. That's right. And together we are the dynamic duo, the prodigious pair, the spectacular spouses. And we're here to help the faithful few, the few peppers that are left alive, keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. You call us peppers. Peppers? Yes. We're kind of banana peppers because we're going bananas around here. (laughs) Would you agree? Uh, Not only are we going bananas, we're going jalapenos, too. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Although I will put out a warning for those of you who are handling your fresh jalapenos from the garden. Please, please, please wash your hands very, very carefully. In fact, wear gloves when picking the peppers and preparing the peppers. we got a lot of peas there. That's right. Pairing and pickling. Yes. I also pickle our banana peppers. <laughs> and when Pickle pickling, pairing and picking a peck of pickled peppers. That's right. Wow. And you know what? I've done all of that. Yeah. And so you have. Be careful. You are amazing. Folks, I handled our jalapeno peppers. I made poppers. Remember? Mm-hmm, right. A couple days ago. Very delicious. And I must have brushed my hair off my neck and, and touched my... Uh, right underneath my lower lip, uh, above the chin, and it looks like my neck was burned by a curling iron, which I have not used in years. <laughs> maybe months, but maybe years. It looks just like that. Or I was partially strangled. There is a line of a burn, so I must have touched right. my neck there and then touched my neck on my chin. I probably had an, an itch. I yes. just kind of scratched it and something tickled me. Well, well, I look burned. It's a second degree burn. Bubbled, little... raised, red. Be careful, folks. Wear disposable gloves when doing anything with those peppers. 
And I believe it's probably, I did wash my hands. So I don't want people to think, oh, she just should have washed her hands. I did several times wash my hands. It must not have gotten the resin off. Amazing. From the peppers. Must have just been some oil on there because I had to clean the seeds out. So disposable gloves from now on. That's right. Aloe vera is helping you. And plus some hydrocortisone cream. Yeah, hydrocortisone cream has been really, really soothing. So that's something. Wow. Well, I'm glad that we are figured out what's going on with you. Speaking of peppers. (laughs) We met preppers, though, when we were speaking before. (laughs) Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With an obstreperous ocelot, well, I'll bet you've been obstreperous at one point or another in your life. That is defined as rowdy and hard to control. I know I have. Find an ocelot, and that's a type of wildcat for you guys that don't know out there. It's quite beautiful, really. They are beautiful. And They're not too big either. Kind of like right. a large cat, right? That's right. That's right. And they, you can find them in the southwest United States. If you're lucky, you might have glimpsed one. Uh, if you were very lucky or unlucky, if you tried to disturb it, don't do certainly. that because they're not kitty cats. That's right. Well, they're kitty cats, but just not the kind that you want to disturb. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're not cuddly kitty cats. How's that? Right. Yeah, that, a cuddly is not the way I would describe them. <laughs> well, here's our disclaimer. Absolutely. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Of course you should. However, yes. in times of trouble, you know what you got to do? You got to show the world that you got more sense than a bag of bananas and get the training and education you need. And while you're at it, how about a quality medical kit as well? You absolutely need to have that as part of your supplies, and there's no better place to get it than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never-equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. I want you to compare our kits for content, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff. And you know what? You'll agree our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. Absolutely. That's right. If you want more proof, (laughs) just check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net. We get them every day and see what folks just like you have to say about our kits and service. And on top of that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings accounts. Just look at our special HSA, FSA section in the store. Don't forget to subscribe, by the way, to our website at doomandbloom.net to get special coupons in our newsletters. They don't yes, and updates as what's happening over at the Doom and Bloom survival world. That's right. You'll be glad you did. Hey, you think, speaking of disasters, oh, we always talk about there's disasters There's always here. disasters. Everybody. Do you think, wait, yeah. do you ever think we're going to have a disaster-free week? I don't it's know. It's not possible, is There's it? always a disaster or something. near disaster, something that always happens, a flood, or, a Or even, a I could say, unrest. unrest. Like what's going on over at Hong Kong and what's going on in Venezuela. Right. There's always unrest and, in areas. And natural things like heat waves in uh, oh, Europe. Europe. Oh, poor and Europe. And heat waves last week just in the U.S. too. It, boy, it is pretty crazy. You are not invulnerable out there to disasters. But, but most U.S. US citizens actually think exactly that. Mm-hmm. There are always floods, tornadoes, earthquakes, hurricanes, uh, heat waves, blizzards, gosh, all sorts of stuff. Those are the easy ones. If, 
Now, in news that you won't hear much about, an asteroid that was big enough to be called a city killer what? just missed Earth, and scientists had no idea. Scientists revealed an asteroid came closer to the Earth than the moon this week, and the Washington Post reported, indeed, that they had no idea it was coming. Oh, my gosh. It was called Asteroid 2019 OK. So they just weren't looking in that particular direction. I guess you can't watch from every single direction. That's right. Apparently came curtling from Earth at a speed of nearly 15 miles an hour. And it was Wait, curdling. did you say 15 miles an hour? Yeah, 15 miles an oh, hour. Oh, 15 miles a second. Yeah, okay. Oh, that my gosh. That makes a little more sense. Wow. I yeah. was like, wow, that's the slowest asteroid in the, yeah. <laughs> in the known history. <laughs> I know. There's some hurricanes that go faster than that. Yeah, that's so funny. A second. A second. 15 miles a second. That is pretty darn fast before flying past us about 45,000 miles from Earth. The moon is about 220 to 240,000 miles wow, away. that is really close. So that's close. pretty darn close. I, you know what I'd call moon. that? Ready? Mm-hmm. A close encounter. Ah. Remember the, the movie? Of the third kind, do, yes. Do, 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 do. I forget the sound. How did the sound go that he did? Do, 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 do. That's it. Good job. There you go. Good job. That's right. I have a good memory. Hey, <laughs> this is... No, this was apparently no bigger than a very, very large boulder. Okay. However, if it hit, according to an astronomy professor named mm-hmm. Alan Duffy, it would have hit with over 30 times the energy of the Hiroshima atomic bomb. Wow. And so that would be plenty to kill a, a good-sized city. Wow. I mean, considering what the atomic bomb did to Hiroshima. Sure. And apparently the reason why they didn't know the rock was headed this way mm-hmm. is because it came from the direction of the sun. <gasps> so, so it was hidden. That is amazing. And it only became visible just before they saw it pass by. And the, the amazing thing about, about this is that we don't get hit more often. There are 20,000 near-Earth asteroids, and they, they make appearances in 2013. Remember mm-hmm. one exploded in the air over some Russia. city in yeah. Russia? And uh, injured a bunch of people, mostly with flying glass and stuff like that. It was like an explosion. Well, the thing exploded in the atmosphere. Right. And just caused ruckus all over the city. Oh, right. Broke windows all over the place. And this is the thing. What do you do about something like this? Well, you and I can't do anything, but scientists from around the world have been asked how to respond to some scenario where an asteroid big enough, like this one, Uh, might be on track to strike the Earth. Well, they say that using spaceships to give the asteroid a nudge might be an actual option there. Yeah, if they know it's coming. Because you only have to move it a little bit, right? Can we just go back to the fact that they didn't even know this was coming? We would not have had time to get somebody in space to, quote, nudge it away. You'd have to have people out there constantly circling around waiting to protect us at any moment, like superheroes in the sky. Well, that would be awesome, but we're going to have to Can't depend. Can't afford that. Yeah, we're going to have to depend probably. On, I don't know if they would use atomic bombs, so that would break it up into a bunch of smaller pieces, which can cause even more damage, I guess. So this nudging idea is just kind of to put it off of its path course. Right. So it would just miss us, hopefully. Right. So it might just totally miss Earth's right. orbit by just a little, a little bit, and... Uh, it's something that is a possibility. It sounds great, but, of course, it would probably sounds, help to know that it's coming, actually. Well, it also <laughs> sounds like a suicide mission, mission too. If anyone's on that, 
Can you imagine having mm -hmm. a little a little fender bender with a asteroid? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound very survivable. <laughs> anyway. Wow. Well, anyhow, I'm sure that's... they'll figure out something eventually. Well, if that had hit us and it caused big problems with, of course, it could cause big clouds. Uh, it could affect Dust. crops, Dust. You know, all sorts of stuff. Yep. And one, you might wind up in some long-term disaster situation. So I want to talk a little bit about what would happen down the line with regards to our women, to women in a survival setting long-term. I mean, it's a rare individual. I mean, you may not be a female that's listening right now, perhaps, mm -hmm. but it's a rare individual that doesn't have a wife, a girlfriend, a mother, daughter, granddaughter. Well, if they don't have a mother. Oh, well, they do have a mother. They, I mean, they of, either have, of childbearing have age. or had a mother. Everyone uh -huh. has that. If I, if I finish my sentence, it would have said of childbearing age. There you go. And that's maybe, what, 13 to 45, 47 I don't know. They're pushing the boundaries of fertility these days. They really are. But if we are in a disaster, yes, that's probably going to be more reasonable. Now, even if they aren't related to you personally, they could be in your survival group. Remember that even if you have a daughter that's only five years old now, one day she's going to enter the reproductive age group and will have you have to deal with that You know, parents don't want to think about that, oh, right? Nobody ever wants to think about that. <laughs> Keep our children children forever. And... This is the thing. If something collapses, if our society becomes unstable mm -hmm. and organized medical care is spotty or non-existent, right. well, so we'll access to modern birth control methods like the pill. And so what happens is we're going to have a lot of people that are wind up getting pregnant that ordinarily wouldn't. Right. If we reach a point where we lose our, our access to modern health care, that, that means that one of the least welcome events might be one that's ordinarily considered by most people, at least, a blessing. Of course. And that is a pregnancy. Absolutely. A baby is awesome, except what you're talking about in a situation where there's chaos and there might not be food or water or shelter and certainly not proper medical care for someone who is going to have a baby. And that's it's, a very scary right. thing to think about. That's right. And it's not just inconvenient timing. No. <laughs> Here in modern times, that, that may be the biggest issue, but the in... Survival in survival situations, right. we're talking about the actual survival of the mother, too. That's right. And the normal view, of course, of survivalists is, is that, well, we must have the responsibility to repopulate the world. And, of course, that's absolutely true down the road. But first, your family has to actually survive. Right. So until things settle down, a pregnancy... And become the, stable. Right, exactly. Where there, you know there is shelter and you figured out, even if you don't have a lot of medical supplies, how to MacGyver them, how mm -hmm. to use things that don't ordinarily we use for medical supplies, but say even just cotton sheets, you know, for bandages and things like that, splints, holding a splints on and triangular bandages. We're going to have to figure out all of these things. We need to settle that first before we bring more possible medical problems into the world. That's right. A pregnancy and the, and the possible complications that could accompany it, they're going to be a, a heck of a burden right. and certainly is going to take away people productivity the yes. productivity of some of the people in your group so let's talk about what happens when you don't have modern medicine in pregnancy 
in, in very in modern times, the death rate from pregnancy mm-hmm. and its complications, that's known as a maternal mortality rate, is very, very low. But at the time of the American Revolution, once the, when the grid wasn't didn't exist, mm-hmm. it was about two percent or so per pregnancy. And if you figure that the average fertile woman in the year 1800 actually had about six to 12 pregnancies over the course of her reproductive life. Bless bless them. (laughs) I I know. It's amazing. The cumulative maternal mortality rate, that's 2%, is per pregnancy. Right. Right. Easily approached 20, 25%. And that means in some areas, one out of four otherwise healthy women died due to complications from being pregnant during the childbirth or maybe even soon after a successful delivery due to infection, infection. things like that. Yep. If a major disaster occurs, women are going to have, uh, I think, an unacceptable level of risk. There's not going to be medicine or medical supplies with which to really treat any complications that are associated with pregnancy and childbirth. Right. And deaths may happen simply because of dehydration because the woman's vomiting. You know, there are no IV fluids or medications to stop bleeding or nausea and vomiting or treat infection. So these will end up in tragedies. Even now, we have patients. I remember we had patients in the hospital who, despite all the medications we had in the world, still threw up after every meal or between meals. Even just sips of water would make them sick. So... Given modern medicine doesn't always save the day when someone has sickness, and what we had to do was we had to keep them on IV fluids, and sometimes we had to give them nutrition through different ways. Yes, we had to actually feed them through an IV. Or or through an NG tube, which is no fun whatsoever, but if the woman, you know, needed to get some nutrition, she's losing too much weight, we needed to do what we had to do. To, to keep them of normal weight or being healthy in any way we can. We're not going to have all of that. When without so, that. And, and what I'm saying is even now, today, women still have severe problems with throwing up. Absolutely. Even now. Absolutely. And, and you know that we have all these old medical books that we have from the 19th century. When you read about this condition, which is called hyperemesis gravidarum, mm-hmm. Uh, basically bad vomiting during pregnancy, they cite a death rate of 10%, 20%, 30% or more simply because of dehydration as a result of not being able to keep fluids in. Just imagine that in a full-time, full-blown disaster situation here, that would happen again. And this is going to happen at a time when you need every member of your survival group to be totally productive. You've got to grow food. You've got to manage livestock. You've got to defend the perimeter. You've got to care for children. That's going to take the energy of everybody, and everybody's got to be at 110%. And when you're pregnant, you are anything but 110%. When a pregnancy goes wrong, Mm -hmm. it can take away a valuable contributor from any survival family or survival group. And that and it does it sometimes permanently. And, and what if that's the nurse? What if it was someone like me who got pregnant in a disaster m- many years ago? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't want to do that now. But let's say I was 
the caretaker. I'm the nurse midwife. I'm the nurse practitioner. Let's say I'm the survival medic for the group, and now I'm pregnant, and then I get sick. Can you imagine? You you could have not just a valuable member who um, knows how to cook really well on fires or who knows where all of the herbal medicines are, all the edible things in the forest. I mean, there's sure. a lot of knowledge that you could lose from Everybody somebody has skills, who's right? just in bed feeling so sick they can barely walk or move. You don't know how valuable that person is. I mean, it's just it's super scary. So hyperemesis gravidarum, severe vomiting during pregnancy, that is just one of the reasons that you can wind up losing a productive member of your group. Right. That is just one. And even if you had IV fluids, mm-hmm. how many IV fluids are you going to lug around? I mean, each liter of fluid weighs, you know, a good few pounds or, you know, a good 2.2 pounds, I think. I think. One liter yep. is one yep. kilogram, right? Exactly. And so maybe you can carry around a few bags of it. You can't carry around a lot of it. So, And sure enough, hyperemesis doesn't last a day. Well, let, let's even go to the extreme. Let's say that you mm-hmm. have accumulated, like we did, boxes and boxes of normal saline. I know our normal saline right now expired, I believe, what was it, 2013? Yep. And now it looks clear. So if I had to use it on you or you had to use it on me and we were fully aware of the expiration date and our risk, but we knew someone was going to die if we didn't do it, on you and I, I, I would let you put that in me because it looks clear. And, well, sodium chloride is generally inorganic, too. I would, not a lot of organic I would stuff be afraid it. to use it on someone else. And eventually, they are going to expire. That's just the way it is. So either you have a whole bunch of them and they end up expiring or you didn't have them in the first place. The truth is after a period of time, you're going to be stuck in the same situation. You're not going to have IV fluids. Right. You will have expended them or you will not. You have to maybe travel and you can't really afford the space to have them. And There's a lot of different reasons. A lot of different reasons. In the end. Well, then there's... Something else, miscarriage. You know, the human race is not perfect. We don't always produce perfect pregnancies. About 10% of all pregnancies end in miscarriage. miscarriage. And when a woman miscarries, many times she doesn't pass all of the dead tissue that relates to the pregnancy. And on occasion, what happens is this tissue becomes infected or, or causes excessive bleeding It's if it's stuck in there. And the treatment in this case is usually something called a DNC, a dilatation and curatage is what it means, which is a procedure that basically opens up the cervix and uses scrapers called curettes to remove the retained tissue. And this stops the bleeding and prevents infection. And if you don't have the ability... It saves the life of the mother. That's right. And how many survival groups are going to have the ability and the knowledge to perform this procedure without actually maybe perforating the uterus or doing something terrible that makes things worse than... When they started. No, you really, really need to know what you're doing. And will you have access? Do not stick instruments into a woman's uterus unless you have... Experience. Not even just experience. Professional education. Doctor level. That's because it is... I'm sorry. It's very scary stuff. They don't even teach nurse practitioners to do DNCs. There you go. So... And also... Infection, who's going to have access to all the antibiotics necessary to treat a possible infection? 
I hope that some of you have some antibiotics out there. And we've talked about different ways to get that. But not everybody does. Now, then there's also hypertension. Some people, when they get pregnant, some women, when they get pregnant, wind up developing high blood pressure. That's called pregnancy-induced hypertension. In the old days, they called it preeclampsia. Preeclampsia. And it's pretty common, honestly. Yes. Usually when you, a woman reaches the last month of a pregnancy, usually her first, she begins to have elevated blood pressures that cause extreme swelling, things like edema. Normal pregnancy causes swollen ankles, but pregnancy-induced hypertension swells up the entire body, actually even includes the face. So left in, untreated, this condition can lead to seizures, can become life-threatening. Off the gr grid, certainly the only treatment available would be bed rest. What else are you going to do? How are you going to control blood pressure when maybe you're in a group of young people that don't happen to have any blood pressure medicines? And also, a lot of blood pressure medicines are not really uh, used during pregnancy because of risks to the mother or the baby themselves. So, man, oh man, it is very complex. And we're not even talking about childbirth. Let's say the pregnancy itself was uncomplicated. The birth process was usually perfectly natural and routine, could present some dangers. Every childbirth, for example, involves some bleeding. It could be a little, it could be a lot, could be caused by lacerations from the passage of the infant through the vaginal canal or maybe from a stubborn placenta and the afterbirth that doesn't expel itself spontaneously. Well, when childbirth is associated with excessive bleeding, well, you know, there are certain procedures and maneuvers that are performed by trained midwives or even obstetricians to stop the hemorrhage. I'll tell you, without trained individuals present at the birth, Bleeding may not stop before there's major damage that's done to the mother. And that is something that we have experienced. At you as, Sadly. I know, as an personally, obstetrician. Personally right? and professionally. It can be pretty terrible. I mean, the amount of bleeding that people can have is t scary, just plain old scary. I mean, there are even some circumstances where the placenta decides not to deliver spontaneously. And... What you have to do, well, I'm not going to tell you much about that. You have to go in there and grab it and remove it, and that causes a major infection, raging infection, I can imagine, in any survival situation where you're not under relatively clean or sterile conditions. Well, not only that, but you have to do it in a very certain way so that there aren't, again, pieces of it retained inside the uterus. Because those retained tissues could become infected. Exactly. So every medic has to have the knowledge, equipment, and medications needed to treat infection, to deal with bleeding, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Now, there are indeed complications after childbirth, too. Conditions in the delivery room after a disaster, well, they could certainly be conducive to the development of infections, even if the delivery goes perfectly fine. And in the past, this was a major cause of maternal mortality before antibiotics became available in the 1930s, 1940s. Uh, other problems can manifest themselves in the postpartum period in the first days to weeks after the baby is born. That's called the postpartum period. So if a woman had a hemorrhage during childbirth, she could be so weakened by the loss of blood that she's unable to return to normal activities for a very long time. 
And some women actually go undergo a period of depression, mental depression, called postpartum depression. I'm sure you've heard of it. And have difficulty being productive and functioning after having a baby. Certainly in a situation where uh, there's a long-term disaster, I could imagine that happening just about all the time to women. So this is something that, especially if you have been used to the comforts of and the benefits of modern medicine. Now, we're saying all this terrible stuff. I don't want everybody to think that all women are going to die during no. or right after their no, pregnancy. No, it's a natural thing. And, and long before there were hospitals or doctors, there were midwives. <laughs> right, that's right. And, um, you know, you, you learn to handle things and they just knew the risk. They understood what could happen. They didn't necessarily know all of the, the proper... Uh, Things that are written in the medical books today were a little different than probably what the knowledge was that was passed from midwife to midwife, whoever was caring for delivering the babies in their communities. Because pretty much every community had somebody that had had that knowledge passed to them by a, a mentor. And the people who were now taking over had observed births, had performed births, had, had some training, informal but with somebody who was knowledgeable, just like blacksmiths. Right. You know, you apprentice you, apprentices. You passed on the knowledge from person to person so that all the little details of how to do things properly were in that person's head before they took the full responsibility of the care. That's right. And indeed, we wouldn't exist as a species if indeed everybody died Someone as a result figure, of childbirth, right? Someone right? didn't figure out how to take care of some of these women That's exactly. who were having emergencies. That's exactly right. So we're only saying that not all survival groups are going to be prepared to obtain the knowledge and resources and the ability to deal with the complications that pregnancy may cause. So the question is, if people are riding in the streets and your garden isn't doing so well yet, well, do you really need to add a newborn baby to your list of responsibilities? And the answer is probably exactly. no. So you have to prevent pregnancy. What's your plan? Even long-term preppers haven't spent much time figuring that one out of what birth control method they're going to use if a catastrophe takes them off the grid. So the question is, have you included condoms or other birth control methods in your bug-out bag? Well, majority of folks probably do not. So if you did, congratulations. That means you're way ahead of the rest of the guys that are just thinking about the beans and the bullets. Right. It's important to have condoms in your storage. Remember, condoms, however, can break. Even if they don't, they don't last forever. With spermicide, they expire after a couple of years. Without spermicide, maybe three years. Uh, diaphragms, another common method in which a woman places a, a latex barrier or rubber barrier over her cervix, that usually requires a chemical spermicide. That also expires or loses the potency and even the rubber can become brittle over time so it's not a permanent solution none of these things are permanent solutions mm -hmm. they become brittle they break so some people use iud's intrauterine devices to prevent pregnancy and uh, some of these have hormones in them that wear off over time yep. but there's still actually indeed some use to them they will work just as a foreign body inside the uterus that will prevent um, the implantation of, of a fertilized egg. And so these things, however, have to be inserted into the body of the uterus. And if you haven't done that before 
you don't have experience with that, well, you might have an injury that can occur. The uterine walls can be perforated. All sorts of stuff can happen. And birth control pills, they're great, but it's difficult to get more than a few months supply at any one time. Insurance companies, they tightly control when women get their next pack of pills. Even if you could get them, they'll cost a bundle if you wanted to purchase a few years' worth outside of insurance plans. So that's the cost of stockpiling this stuff. It can be pretty difficult for the average person. Absolutely. So you got to think about, well, natural methods. Now, some advocate the use of lemon or lime juice as a douche prior to intercourse. That high acid content is thought to be lethal to sperm. I don't know if it would cause an irritation. I would think it would cause an irritation down there. And in the past, people have actually used an actual slice of lemon or lime as a cap in the vagina during the act of intercourse. Ow. Can you believe that? No. That, uh, that no, is, that sounds very painful. But I, actually, I have read that exact thing. Ooh, citric exactly acid, okay. Hey, it's important to know that these methods just aren't effective if you use them after the sexual act because you already have multitudes of sperm that have entered the cervix. They're well on their way to performing their duty, which is to make a pregnancy. So be aware that some women are going to experience <laughs> irritation if they try to prevent pregnancy in this manner and they're going to be really irritated when it doesn't work. Oh my gosh. <laughs> now there's no commercial or even herbal herbal contraceptive that is 100% effective and guaranteed to have no side effects. Therefore, the best strategy is to perhaps predict as accurate, accurately as you can. There for, is one way. Right. For, Abstinence. <laughs> well, that, that's the second that way. That solves all the problems. All right. Well, I'm not counting. Barring abstinence, now we're going to discuss natural family planning. Yes. I'm not, <laughs> not counting on abstinence as an option for a lot of people. I highly would recommend it during survival. Just my suggestion. There you go. Well, the best strategy may be is to predict as accurately as possible the fertile parts of the cycle and plan to be abstinent during that time, yes. at least. Yes. If you can do that, well, then you're going to have a better chance of preventing pregnancy. And to make these predictions, you have to go back to a traditional form of birth control called natural family planning. In the old days, we called it the rhythm method. It's not as effective in preventing pregnancy as a pill, uh, but it, it can be up to 90% effective if you do it just right. Exactly. There. Or not do it just right. Get it? <laughs> uh, not do it at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Well, and that, the good thing about this is there's no need to put hormones into your system. There's no side effects. Natural family planning is a time-honored method to prevent pregnancy that fits in well with pretty much any collapse strategy. Now, natural family planning involves trying to figure out your fertile period and avoiding unprotected intercourse during that time. This method works best on women that have relatively regular cycles. And if your cycles are predictable, if you release an egg for fertilization on a regular basis, then your periods are going to be predictable too. You usually have a period about two weeks after having your ovulation. So if you or your partner has 28-day menstrual cycles, a lot of people do, you can bet that ovulation is occurring Number one, you can bet that ovulation is occurring because there are regular periods. I see people with very irregular periods may not be ovulating every month. But also you can bet that there is a certain period of time that you're most likely to get pregnant. And so what you need to do, matter of fact, I just wanted to say this, that people that don't use protection, 80 to 85% of them can expect the pregnancy within the first year of a collapse if they're not careful. 
that if you if get a calendar, get a, get make sure you have some paper and a pen or pencil. Right, and take your and what you do is you take your temperature with a thermometer daily for a cycle or two, and what happens is wait, I want to mention the the temperature that you need to take that before you rise out of bed, and there are actually basal body temperature thermometers, thermometers that are still a thermometer, but they give you much more detail in the exact temperature of your body because this temperature varies just slightly before you're going to ovulate and it, and also after the ovulation before you end up getting your cycle, your period. Right. So what you need to do in this case Daily at the same time, as Amy said, usually before right after getting, out, before of bed. getting out of bed, you take your temperature daily, do this for a couple of cycles. Write it down. And it might be problematic during a survival situation. So you should maybe consider performing these calculations prior to a catastrophe happening so you have a really good idea of when you or, you or your spouse or your partner are actually ovulating. Mm -hmm. When you ovulate, your basal body temperature goes up about half a degree, and it stays up yep. for a period of time. Unless you are still period. pregnant, and then your temperature does not drop. There you go. It stays up. There you go. Which is a sign of pregnancy. There you go. <laughs> if you, a lot of people that are organized make a graph or chart of the daily temperatures, and you'll see a pattern developing if you do this, and you always count day number one is the first day of menstrual bleeding. So the first day of your period is day number one. And once you've carried this through, if you, let's say you're, you have a 28-day cycle and the temperature rises uh, around day 14, about a half a degree, well, you should know that that's a time when you should avoid having unprotected intercourse maybe a couple of days earlier, a couple of days later, so you can have a pattern that develops, so day maybe 10 the day name maybe 16 or 17. So let's explain to them why. Because sperm is hardy. They want to do their duty. And they want to be there when the egg comes out. And they last as long as so they can. Let's, yeah. So let's understand two principles here. One, the egg itself only is fertile for about 24 hours. So that's the window after you ovulate. After that egg's gone, nobody's going to get in there. However, if sperm is waiting around, which could be about three days, then when the egg is released, the sperm that was there from three days prior could still be fertile, although it'd have to be really hardy, but they've, they've said three days, to be able to fertilize an egg. So you need to cut out the intercourse, and I would give it an extra day, and that's why we're saying 10 you really want to be safe do nine <laughs> so really on the ninth day so if you have six days of bleeding that means you got three days without bleeding and then you need to cut it out and that window you need to cut it out from is the ninth or tenth day through about the 16th or 17th day all right you're Safely, making that's a pre that the i'm wider, sorry the it's about seven days a good seven days right the wider the period of absence that you use so, the less likely that absolutely. pregnancy will occur so that makes a lot of sense. The safer, the better. That's right. Um, ovulation may occur also a little bit earlier, a little bit later every month. And exactly. so, you know, you can Give figure out. a window. Right, exactly. Uh, uh, 
Now, there are changes also, physical changes in your body. You may notice a vague discomfort when you ovulate in one side of your abdomen, lower abdomen. You may notice cyclical changes in your cervical mucus. Um, the cervical mucus method is based on checking out the character of the cervical mucus during the course of the menstrual cycle. To do this method, you've got to understand how cervical secretions change during a typical cycle. You, normally, you see little or no cervical secretions for several days after each period. Sticky, thick secretions then maybe for the next few days. And then as ovulation occurs, the, the cervical mucus becomes clear and watery. It wants to help the sperm get up there. Right. And so it makes it easier. It's a river. Exactly. Follow the river. Follow the river. And what happens then is the sperm can travel up there quicker and indeed sure enough, give a better chance to cause pregnancy. And as the period approaches, the cervix becomes thicker and there's less quantity of cervical secretions and it all happens again in, in a cycle. You can obtain a sample of cervical mucus by placing gently two glove fingers into the vagina all the way to the cervix, the neck of the womb, and, and the cervix feels like a, a firm projection at the end of the vagina. And you examine the mucus the cervical mucus, when it's not ovulating, is going to be thick. So if you, you had some in your fingers, you spread your fingers, it will cause it to snap apart. And spreading two fingers with mucus on it during ovulation will cause that mucus to actually stretch a lot before it actually breaks. And so that is a sign that you're ovulating. Yes. So there's that. Now, of course, make sure you, if you do this type of thing, you wash your hands thoroughly before an exam. I have an ample supply of gloves. Nitrile gloves are always preferable to avoid reactions in women that are allergic to latex. Mm -hmm. So if you perform all this correctly, the natural family planning methods is an effective, long-term, and completely natural way to prevent pregnancy. And in survival scenarios, it's going to allow you to decide when things are stable enough to bring a newborn into the world. In the news, wet weather is to blame for hordes of grasshoppers that have descended upon, guess where, Las Vegas this week. Oh, no. <laughs> we saw some of those out in the Everglades a few days ago, right. remember? Yes, that's right. Uh, we have giant them here. ones. We've got big ones, uh, pretty ones. They're they're multicolored down here. Yeah, yellow and green. But they but do all huge. sorts. What are they like? Yeah. Three or four inches. Yeah, long? they're a really good size. They're giant. Now, a scientist that studies insects is called an entomologist, and a state entomologist for the Nevada told the media on Thursday that the scale of adult grasshoppers traveling north to central Nevada is a rare thing, but it's actually not unprecedented, probably not a concern. Uh, there's circulating photos around showing grasshoppers on sidewalks all over in big <laughs> piles uh, outside the offices of oh my uh, gosh. Uh, the local newspaper had had one as a matter of fact and they're relatively mild-mannered but they sw they're sweeping through Las Vegas and it should be a week or so before they actually Finish hit up. the road and <laughs> the amazing thing is that the reason why they're there is first not for anything that happened recently but uh -huh. what happened several months ago relatively wet weather it appears that if there is a wet spring mm -hmm. then what happens is it causes more grasshoppers to breed more eggs to hatch and 
more grasshoppers to be produced. Sounds like a very vicious cycle there. Yeah, it happens apparently every few years. The last one happened about six or seven years ago. And the good news, and funny, interestingly, the Las Vegas area has recorded more rain in six months this year than the average rainfall for a year. The insect specialist says that grasshoppers pose no danger, don't carry disease, don't bite, and probably won't damage anybody's property by the time they're gone. This guy, does he have any experience with grasshoppers? They eat all your plants. I know. The insects, well, are usually attracted to ultraviolet light sources, so install low UV lights if you want to avoid having them sort of gather around your property. Mm -hmm. So they don't even consider this particular species a problem, but I'll tell you, down here, if you got a bunch of those grasshoppers on a plant, that plant is gone, baby. Gone, gone, gone. Well, so anyhow, they're, maybe they're not the plague of locusts that bugged the Egyptian pharaoh in Moses' time. But there are plenty of bugs that bite and sting, and some can pass diseases as well. Now, I say bugs because some of these critters aren't actually insects. Uh for example, many people think that spiders and ticks are insects. Mm -hmm. They're actually wrong. They are arachnids. Arachnids. That's right. Insects have six legs and three main body parts. Spiders and ticks are arachnids. They have two body segments and eight legs. And in any case, we've talked recently about snake bites, but you'll see about a million bugs for every snake that's around. So... Let's find out. A so a much higher chance of having that issue. That's right. So many, honestly, that you are not going to get through this summer without getting bitten by I've them. I've had mine already. That's right. Oh, gosh. Remember when we were over at Sanibel on oh, the yeah. beach with there Jack and Dorothy? A lot of those sand fleas. Do you remember my legs? Bit. Yes, I know. You had a lot of bites. Ugh. It's pretty crazy. Mean bugs. That's what I say. They're mean so you can expect to be regularly get bitten by them, and that causes usually a little pain, some local redness, itching. 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 itching intense swelling. itching. <laughs> Thank goodness they're rarely life-threatening. Yes. Uh, but there are exceptions. Black widow spiders, brown recluse spiders. Oh, yes. There are a number of caterpillars down in South Florida that are poisonous, scorpions, uh, bark scorpions in the Southwest. Well, many of their bites and stings can inject all sorts of toxins that can cause serious damage. And of course, we're talking about the actual bite itself, not the actual disease. Mm -hmm. Now, there are toxins that are just basically poisons that are in, or venoms that are, that are injected into the body. And then, of course, there are diseases which mosquitoes, for example, pass malaria and a bunch of other diseases, West Nile virus, things like that. And they can cause a lot of major issues there can cause epidemics the mosquitoes but let's talk a little bit about the insects that have venom the bugs that have venom and stinging insects uh, well they can be annoyances but up to three percent of the population are so allergic to them that they can be life-threatening and in the united states there are 40 to 50 deaths a year caused by hypersensitivity reactions and for most people the offender is going to be a bee, uh, let's say a wasp, maybe a hornet, uh, a bee leaves its stinger in the victim and a little bit of its abdomen too. So unfortunately it for it, it dies after the sting. Wasps take their stingers back with them and they can sting again. Even though you won't get stung again by the same bee though, they'll send out a scent that informs nearby bees that an attack is underway 
and especially those Africanized bees, uh, though they're much more aggress aggressive than native honeybees, well, you know, you got to be very careful about that. So leave the area whenever a bee sting or uh, a sting occurs, whether that's a wasp, a hornet, or a, or a bee. The best way to reduce any reaction to bee venom is to remove the bee stinger as quickly as you can. Now, you can pull it out with tweezers or, if possible, scrape it out with your fingernail. That would be a good idea. Uh, there is a venom sac that's attached to that, and it should not be squeezed. Actually, it would inject more irritant into your victim, so you have to be very careful to get it by the stinger itself and lift. The longer bee stingers uh, are allowed to remain in the body, the higher chance there is for a severe reaction. But luckily, most bee, bee and wasp stings heal with little or no treatment. Uh, if there's only a local reaction, then all you have to do is clean the area thoroughly, remove the stinger, as I mentioned, if you can see it, uh, place cold packs and maybe anesthetic ointments to relieve discomfort and lo local swelling, control itching and redness with oral antihistamines, such as, let's say, Benadryl, things like that, uh, give uh, acetaminophen, uh, Tylenol, or ibuprofen, Advil, to reduce discomfort and apply an antibiotic ointment to prevent infection. Uh, there are topical essential oils that you can apply after removing the stinger, by the way, with effects, things like helichrysum. Uh, um, am I pronouncing it right? Helichrysum? Helichrysum. <laughs> helichrysum. <laughs> I always get that one wrong. Tea tree, peppermint oil. Things like that, if you apply one to two drops to the affected area three times a day, it probably will work. Also, a baking soda paste is pretty good. Baking soda mixed with a small amount of water may be useful when you apply it to a sting wound. Now, although most of these injuries are relatively minor, there are quite a few people who are allergic to the toxins in the sting. Some are so allergic, they have what we call an anaphylactic reaction. Instead of just local symptoms like rashes and itching, they'll experience dizziness, difficulty breathing, possibly collapse even, severe swelling, you can see that in some people, and that swelling can occur not just where the rash is, but all over. It could be occur on a person's face, even if they were bitten on the hand, or I mean, uh, it was stung on the hand. Mm -hmm. uh, those people that have an anaphylactic reaction are going to need treatment with epinephrine, as well as antihistamines, Benadryl, and things like that that are oral don't work fast enough. So you need to have, if you have any question of an allergy to bee stings or wasp stings or hornets venom, well, what you need to do is carry some epinephrine on your person. And uh, epinephrine is available in a pre-measured -measure, dose in a cartridge known as the EpiPen. Sort of an expensive deal, but and there is a pediatric version as well. The EpiPen's a prescription medication but very few doctors would ever begrudge a request for one, especially if they know that you're going to be on uh, uh, outside mm -hmm. doing things and exposed to these kinds of critters. And what you want to do is make sure they are aware, your doctors, that you're going to be outside, that you're going to be exposed to all these different possible causes, and that you're worried about allergies, uh, a severe allergic reaction. And by the way, if you are, you should have more than one EpiPen. Sometimes the first one doesn't work. Uh, and you need a second one to be able to function. 
Well, more about bug bites next week. Thank you, folks, for listening. We really appreciate it. This has been the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton. Don't forget to check out our website, doomandbloom.net, and amazing medical supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. Be safe and healthy, guys. Bye-bye. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.